Hey everybody, I'm Mike Levy and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. Now I've got a question for you. Who do you think is the most recognizable, most widely known mountain biker? Well, if we're talking about who's going to be recognized at a trailhead, you could make a strong case for it being a man named Seth Elvo, who lives in Asheville, North Carolina. You might know him as Seth from Berm Peak, previously known as Seth's Bike Hacks. Now, Seth has amassed 2.38 million subscribers on his YouTube channel, as well as another 800,000 subscribers on his side channel, Berm Peak Express. He's done this by creating videos on everything from trail building, bike maintenance, strange products, and even RC trucks. I sat down with Seth for a bit to chat about how he ended up on YouTube, what it's like creating videos all the time, building his own bike park, traditional media versus YouTube, and all sorts of other things. All right, Seth, thanks for joining us today. So I think that a lot of riders know you from your YouTube channel that has like almost 2.4 million subscribers, which is pretty wild. We're going to get to that at some point later on in the show. But first, we do have to talk about how it started, what you were doing before you started doing this and all that stuff. So Seth, what were you doing before you started the YouTube channel? I was building websites and just managing people's IT infrastructure. I was sort of like a remote consultant. And I say I was a web designer or a web developer, but I was I was doing kind of everything. I just uh, ended up with a few small clients and then got more. I knew how to fix things, knew how to solve things, build websites. And that's what I was doing. And then at some point, I started making videos. And it was, it was sort of for fun. There were, there were maybe a lot of reasons behind it, but I didn't know anything about YouTube. I didn't know that people subscribe. I didn't know that people actually logged into YouTube. Um, I had never left a YouTube comment in my life. And as I posted these videos, I was really surprised that people were asking me to post more of them. They're, when are you going to post the next video? And I'm thinking, what do you mean next video? YouTube has no loyalty. You go on there and you click one cat video and then you click the next one. And, you know, I didn't know that people actually stuck to certain channels at the time. I, I don't think a lot of people did at that time. It was like 2015. And so I felt this pressure to continue posting videos and you get a rush from it because you get this validation like that video was good or sometimes it's not so good and it stings, but you get motivated to do it again and keep doing better. And by the time I had like 10,000 subscribers... I realized I could monetize it. And I, I didn't think... I, I was thinking, okay, well, what am I going to get? Like $14 a month or something? And then I, I turned on the monetization. And I said, oh, wow, there's my car payment. Uh, <laughs> if I keep doing this, I could stop doing web development. This is way, way more fun. And th it was through those extrapolations and projections that I just decided this is what I'm going to do. How long were you doing it for fun before you, you flipped the switch and said, I'm going to do this full time? And did you have to convince your family or, or how hard was that? Well, my family does, they kind of know that I just do what I want to do. You know, I, uh, <laughs> they're used to it. I made, <laughs> yeah, I made it on my own doing the web stuff. And it was a little weird when I started spending more and more time doing the YouTube stuff because I was, 
I was working seven days a week between the web thing and YouTube. And it's like, really, this is, there's, what happens if YouTube falls through? What happens, you know, what do you have to fall back on? You're going to, let me, let me backtrack a second because, so to answer your first question, I probably did it for about a year by the time I realized that it was viable, but it wasn't viable as a full-time job for about three years. So probably into the third year is when I finally came up with a plan to sort of transition away. I had already started firing, you know, pain in the ass clients and stuff, tried to just, uh, you know, free up some of my time. Um, and just, I was down to like maybe two or three of my best, like most profitable clients that I didn't mind dealing with. And then I got to the point where I was like, guys, uh, give it about two months and I'm not going to be doing this anymore. So let me help transition you over to somebody else. I tried to leave them in as good a hands as possible. And I started doing YouTube full time. And yeah, there were questions from different family members like, you know, what are you going to fall back on? What if it doesn't work out? I'm saying, you didn't ask me the same questions when I was building websites. Now, what do you do if you're a web developer? (laughs) People don't even have websites. They put their whole like restaurant menu on Facebook or whatever. So it turned out that YouTube was actually more stable than what I was doing. It was more predictable and it was, it was easier to, it was easier to grow. It was easier to scale Yeah. because when you're, when you're the guy, when you're doing web development, if, yeah, if you're a great organizational leader, you can hire all sorts of people and you can sell jobs and you can make it happen. Now you're not doing what you originally did. Just like, you know, the, the restaurateur wants to open up a restaurant and so they start cooking and next thing you know, they're managing payroll and hiring and firing and doing all it's that stuff. It's not what they signed up for. It's not what they signed up for and they're not always great organizational leaders. And, and I'm not. I'm not a good organizational leader. I'm good at doing things. And so I was able to scale the YouTube channel without really bringing on more people. You just do the same thing every week and you keep bringing on more subscribers and more people watch. You know, it doesn't require necessarily any more work. We're, we're going to talk about the internet and hustle and, and all that a bit later on in the show. But I, I did a little bit of research and you definitely sound like you are an entrepreneur of sorts and you are database. Like this is, this is no accident from what, from what I've gathered. I was watching an interview with Sarah Moore back in 2018. You said it took six months to get your first 500 subscribers yes was there a point where you thought i know you looked at the numbers and and everything but there was was there a point where you thought like this is not gonna work or did you know the whole time that we're on to something i didn't know i was on to something until it started like doubling every month Mm -hmm. and and when a channel first gets so when you have zero subscribers you post a video it's kind of like just throwing it off of a cliff it just Mm -hmm. goes into the ether and after a couple of weeks, you get like 27 views, 50 views, something like that. And you think, okay, yeah, this isn't, this isn't really working. But as you start to build momentum, as you start getting a few hundred views per video, a few thousand views for, per video, it comes easier. Because now you have these people who tend to like your content and YouTube serves it to them. And so as it started doubling up and doubling up, then I started naturally doing the math. I said, well, okay, by the summer, these videos should be getting like 10,000 views. And, and every time the projection was just blown away. 
it just I was being really conservative with the projections. And the what actually happened was I was getting two to three times as many views, you know, a few weeks later. Wow. Um, it can't keep accelerating like that. Uh, if it did, it'd be great, but it, it can't. And so eventually, you just have steady growth. And that's good enough. It, it's definitely... Um, it's definitely a curve. Yeah. But at first the growth was just insane, partially because it was gaining traction and also because I just got in at the right time. That's when YouTube's monetization program became more accessible. Was there a point where like a conscious decision where you, where you went from making videos that, I mean, I assume when you first started making videos, you were making videos that you just wanted to make period. Um, sure. It's like interesting stuff, but I think, at this point now, I mean, we both we both have to make things that we, maybe we're not like super interested in sometimes. Or sure, at what point did you maybe feel like that had to change? Like, where you had to consciously make videos that people would be interested in? Well, I don't. It's definitely changed somewhat because I've started to get a handle on what my audience wants to see. But if I just made videos about what they wanted to see, I would still just be making 10 bike hacks videos every single week and just like come up with different ways to hide zip ties in your frame or something. <laughs> so, hey, now um, that's my next video I'm going to record next week. Easy. <laughs> so I've continued to change what I've done. And sometimes to the chagrin of my subscribers, sometimes they're like, oh, when are you going to post more of these videos? And I'm like, I don't know, other channels started copying that already and I'm kind of sick of doing it. I want to do this now. Yeah. And what I've found is that keeping it fresh and always kind of doing what I want to do works out better. Now, for sure, I have to do certain things that pay the bills and, and I have to go to events and, and show up for sponsors and things. Mm -hmm. But I still, I still don't like to do things that... I don't want to do because then I don't like editing it and then it doesn't come out good. Yeah. You know, everything you is trudge, better when you want to do it, it, right? It's totally, it's way better. And so it, it effectively delivers better content and makes me more money. So it's not even, so even if I was just completely selfish, um, I would still do what I want to, I would still do the things that make me happy. You know, it's, yeah, it's sort of double selfishness. I get to have fun making the videos and it actually performs better. So yeah, sometimes people are like, Hey, I want you to do those, what you, what you used to do, do another one of those 10 products videos or do another one of the hacks videos. When are we going to get another one of those? And it's like, you, you think you want that, but you don't because yeah. I, I don't have a list of good hacks. I don't have 10 good products or I don't feel like doing that. It's not going to come out how you think it's like, how you think it's going to come out. Right now, how many videos do you make per week? So it's easier to say per month. It's usually five to six videos per month. Yeah. So because I have two YouTube channels. So on the one YouTube channel, which is like, I don't know, 800 something thousand subscribers, that's Burn Peak Express. We do a video every single Sunday or almost every su Sunday. And then on Burn Peak, now we're doing a video once every two weeks. Um, I got a lot of irons in the fire. I might bump that up to every week at some point, but right now I'm working on a lot of projects outside of YouTube. And so doing it every two weeks has definitely helped. Dude, five, five videos a month. That's no joke. Like I know, I know it's what's behind and, and <laughs> what, what it takes to make some of these videos. Let's talk about production for a few minutes. Sure. Um, so 
one of your more popular videos, how, how long would you spend scripting and planning a video just to give people an idea? So if we're talking about burn peak videos, which are the ones that I produce and edit myself, because, because some of the other videos, like let's say I'm just testing a little set of pedals or yeah. messing around with a sandblaster, we film that in one day and then my assistant producer takes that and, and makes an edit. And those are more vloggy style, they're traditional YouTube style. The mm-hmm. ones that I edit, they read more like short films almost. Like uh, it, it's, more, uh, it's more of a story and a narrative. And those figure I finish filming on Friday. Then Monday, I spend about a half a day right... Uh, I spend about a half a day organizing the footage. I organize it meticulously. So I have every single scene, every single thing that happened in the margin in Final Cut Pro so that I can quickly access it. Now, through organizing all that footage, I have to watch all of my footage and learn it. So now I get How a refresher on what just happened. <laughs> it's, it's actually, I really enjoy it. It takes pro- probably about six hours of going through to get to organize all the footage. But having organized it, I just learned it. I just got a refresher on everything I did the week before. It was all blur, right? But now I'm looking through the footage and organizing it. I have a detailed mental image of what all this is. Now I can write the script. So I write out the script. I record it in my recording booth. I clean up the, I clean it up. Now it's about 6 p.m. And I, I find music that I'm going to use in that video. I kind of like have the voiceover playing in the background and I find a bunch of music that I think goes with different scenes. Hmm. Then it's about nine o'clock at night. I go to bed, wake up the next morning and I start editing the second I wake up. And when I'm done, I post the video. So it's usually like two, three o'clock in the morning. So I just work the whole day and then it goes up on Wednesday. And then I sort of take like a half day for myself on Wednesday to just, because I'm just in agony. Have you ever, uh, I know from my experience, there's been, multiple times that we've been out filming something and, and like we ended up like the audio doesn't work or, you know, something, something goes south. How often are you time? Right. Dude. All the time. So frustrating. Like I have these really strict systems in place for SD cards so that I don't like import it. And then it doesn't import. Right. And then we format it, you know, like you for, you write over an SD card or you lose, you somehow lose data and it still happens. It just oh, there's man. no way to there's no way to avoid it. Like it's gonna happen because we're handling hundreds of SD cards. Yeah. And one of them's gonna get misplaced. And so it's it's heartbreaking. It just mm-hmm. you feel like all the work you'd even if we'll have four cameras going, we'll lose one of them. It's always the one with the best shots on it. And yeah, we lose audio. Sometimes I have to go in and change the narrative mm-hmm. to just work. And nobody knows it happened. They think the video is fine, but I'm the only one who knows how good it would have been if I would have had that mm-hmm. or how much earlier I could have gone to bed yeah. if I had that. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong that it's like sometimes you just ask it for trouble. Yeah. Hey, oh, yes. Yeah, you- it's yours to mess up. Yeah, exactly. Before you, before you release a video, I mean, I know no matter what video it is, I'm nervous as hell before it goes up. Like sometimes I don't even sleep that well, even if it's just like a bike check video. Like I'm just like, oh my God, I hope it didn't say anything stupid or no. How nervous are you these days? You've been doing this for a long time, but do you still get nervous? 
No. So, few things. First of all, pink bikes audience is just brutal. I mean, you guys get just <laughs> you guys get are savage. Through, you guys get put <laughs> through the ringer. Yeah. And you know, I've been interviewed on pink bike and stuff before, and like, yeah, it's brutal. Um. So there's a little bit of that built in, but then my, my audience is a little bit. Yeah, they're they're really not that bad. Um, they're there to see you. I feel like they're there Where to see that? me. They're ha- they're really happy I posted. So so yeah. there's that. Also, I posted like 400 something, probably more. I don't know how many videos I posted at this point. It's got to be over 500 videos, and so some of that wears away. Yeah. And also, I really don't read a lot of comments. I read like I read them for like the first couple hours, and then I stop because I've had so many like people who are not on YouTube don't know. You start talking to them about it and they're like, they're like, oh, just you got to get some thicker skin. Just let it roll <laughs> off your back. And it's like, no, you're not imagining what people could say. Like the thing that somebody could say that's going to ruin your entire week. You just haven't heard it yet. I have. Yeah. So I know if I keep digging, I'm going to find it. And so I just don't. And I've been so much happier. I've had so much better mental health as a journalist you know, you kind of have a, you have to go and read through all of them. But I just realized that I'm going to deliver a better product and be able to do this longer and be happier if I just distance myself a little bit from the social media side. Yeah. I feel like the community that, I mean, we both have our own communities and I feel like the level of interaction is, it's super cool. Like that interaction that people like you, you put something out there and then seconds later, Somebody is telling you that you've either done something really well or done something poorly or you've got something in your teeth that you didn't get out. Yes. Did you, earlier on, were you more active in your comments and then you decided to maybe back off a little bit? Because I I found the exact same thing. I'm less active than I used to be. Absolutely. So I used to answer every message that came in, every comment that came in. But at at a certain point, first of all, it becomes unsustainable. Then the only people you're answering are the people who game the system. They leave the same comment over and over and over again to, so it's at the top or they send you a hundred messages so that theirs is always somehow in your site. And so now you're incentivizing bad behavior, first of all. And then also it's just, you, you can't answer them all. You can't even answer close to them all. And so as I started realizing that this was happening. You know, there's no rule book for this. There's no instruction manual. I was getting really bent out of shape about it. Like people want to talk to me and like, I don't want them to think I don't care. And, and I actually had to see a therapist at one point because mm-hmm. I just, I had so much pressure about the unanswered emails, unanswered comments. And I finally had a moment where it's like, this happens to everybody in my position. You have to you can't get all this off your plate before you do the important thing, which is making videos. Make videos, make videos, make videos, spend time with your family. And then if you have leftover time, then you can answer all this stuff. But so you have your fans or your subscribers, and then you have your audience. So your audience is one entity. It's everybody combined. What can I do to benefit my audience? I would love to benefit my fans, the individuals. If I go to Sedona Mountain Bike Festival, I'll spend all day talking to them and shaking hands and taking pictures and giving out stickers and and riding with people and everything. I'm happy to. I'm legitimately excited to do so. And I, I learn more in the during those in-person interactions than I do year reading comments. But 
when I'm here and I have to be making videos, it's going to benefit the vast majority of those people if I keep my head down and stay focused because most of them, they just want to see the video come up. And so it's, it's just the only way to do it. There's no other way. For me, I was like, okay, <laughs> time to take a step back. And like mentally I had to like just chill out a little bit. And I mean, people message me on their, we have a direct message system on pink bike. I think I have 1,550 unread pink bike messages. And like, yeah. I just can't, you know, like, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> yeah. And it's a shame because some of the messages, like I would really like some, you know, I could really help this person or I could say something that's going to like change their life. And, and that would keep me up at night. Yeah. But for every one of those messages, you have a hundred people that are just asking a question about their bike that they could look up themselves. You know, what, you know, what headset fits my bike? What's the, what's the right bottom bracket for a, some bike I've never heard of. So now I'm doing their Google search for them and, you know, they're innocent in it. They don't, you know, they're asking me because I'm the guy that they learn stuff about bikes from. But it's unhelpful for me to continue answering those because it's taking time away from what's actually important, what's going to actually benefit the audience as a whole. I'm sending so, you a message right now just asking what kind of bottom bracket I need for my mountain bike. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Seth, what, is, what does a successful video look like to you? A successful video has a clear narrative. It's really, you could say in one sentence what the video is about. I'll give you an example. We build a lot of wooden stuff on Burn Peak and lumber prices have been going through the roof. And I used to buy a lot of lumber from the store. And we have all these dead standing trees here, some of them with like really good wood in them. And so I said, okay, I got to figure out a way to get these trees down bring them all up the top of the mountain, get them in a trailer and bring them to the sawmill. And so we got a thumbnail. It's just a big picture of a giant blade. The sawmill operator smoking a cigar and I'm standing next to him and we're just both behind the blade. And it's just what Burn Peak is doing about high lumber prices. And there's a big saw blade. So I told the audience very accurately what they're going to experience in the video. Not exactly what they're going to be experiencing, but there's a clear narrative. We're getting the trees. We're figuring out how to transport them. We're going to bring them to the sawmill and then we're going to find out how much it costs, how much we saved. And that's easier than, oh, I'm going to bring a GoPro with me to Whistler and I'm going to film all the trails. And then it's like my, my summer vacation to Whistler, right? They don't really know what they're going to get with that. They, there's no, there could be a narrative but if there was a narrative, there would be a more specific title or, or how to do such and such, how to repair this. You can either, you can have a, a video title and thumbnail that poses a question or puts forth a really simple concept. And if they can get that from the picture and the title, then you can cater the video to that. And for that reason, sometimes I make the thumbnail and the title before the video, actually. Oh, really? Oftentimes I do. Yeah, because that's the person's first impression. They're going to see that video thumbnail and title, and then it's your job to deliver to them what they think they're going to get. You can click, you can clickbait people and give them a completely different thing than what they're going to get, but that only lasts so long. Then they stop watching your channel. 
And so you really want to start off, you want to have your eye on that thumbnail while you're editing, like, okay, let's keep remembering this is the concept. This is what we're doing. I had no idea. I mean, I just, I just kind of got lucky and fell into doing this. And I'm, I don't really know all that much about YouTube and all that stuff. Like we have filmers and editors that know all the things and stuff, but I had no idea how important a thumbnail was. It's oh, of course it's huge. Yeah. It's massive. Yeah. Crazy. What videos would you like to make more of Seth? So as of late, we started doing a flip bike series where we, we buy a bike and flip it. So we buy a really cheap bike. I mean, I, I like seek out the ones that are in the worst condition possible, but I make sure it's a legitimate bike. It was once a good bike and we fix different things that are wrong with it. We replace outdated parts with more up-to-date ones, but we try to do it as cost-effective as possible. And then we actually sell it on Facebook Marketplace and we see what we get for it. So now the object of the video is to make a profit on the bike, but that's, that's not really what it's about. What it's about is we bought this bike for $150. We put $125 into it. Now it's worth $600. So don't tell me you can't afford a bike. You just need to spend the time fixing one up. Like that's the that's the answer, especially in this market. Get a used bike and fix it up. Take your bike that you think you're growing out of and make it better. And the the point is you can put a little bit into it and increase the value in a huge way. And so I love doing those videos because I get really good feedback from the audience. They're like, I, I'm doing this now. I just did this to my old bike. I just bought up an old, bought an old clunker and I'm fixing it up. And who wouldn't love to overhaul a whole bike? I mean, that's so much fun. You know, we, we all, as mountain bikers, we all love tinkering with stuff. We're all gearheads. It's and part of it. Yeah. It's totally part of it. And I've gotten to learn. So I think I'm up to like episode seven or eight or something now. And I've already learned more about painting. I've learned so many things that because I, you know, my only experience doing this is just fixing bikes that I had. Now I'm getting a bike and I'm trying to make it marketable. And we go down to everything to to taking the pictures and and writing the description and marketing it on Facebook or OfferUp or wherever you sell it. Yeah. Those videos have been well received, it sounds like. They've been very well received. I had more people asking me about that at Sedona than anything else. And those videos have really taken off because people know what to expect. They've seen the last few flip bike episodes. And when they they discover one of them, they go back and watch all the other ones. And so I I love those. Uh, I also love the trail building videos, but the work to result ratio isn't as good. Like we work on something for a week and a half. We're dodging rainstorms. We're waiting for the trail to dry. So it's not mushy anymore. And it's a mad rush. I love doing it. And I need trails here so that I can use them for other videos. And my core group of subscribers love it. But um, it's sort of a means to an end. I need trails. And so, you know, we, we got to do trail building videos. I'm not going to do it and not show them. Yeah, exactly. Two birds with one stone there. You get your videos and you get more trails. Yeah, absolutely. Last year, I made this video where I tried to seat a tire with uh, lighter fluid and a barbecue lighter. You know how I saw uh, that. Yeah, 
It didn't work. <laughs> and it was super terrible. And I wish I could delete it from the internet. I think I could make it work. But in that particular video, we couldn't we couldn't get it to work. And I just wish I could take that thing off the internet, to be honest with you. Why can't you? I mean, it's already out there. It's online, which means it's all it's everywhere. <laughs> sure. So at one point, I actually did delete videos that I didn't think performed well because I felt like they tarnished my channel. Yeah. You know, if people are used to clicking on every one of your videos and enjoying them, and then let's say it's it's a new viewer. Yeah. They just saw they just found one of your videos for the first time. They click on another one and then it's not good. They're gonna think that first one was a fluke. So I yeah, I think you should delete stuff you're not proud of, personally. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell Brian that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously, right now, it, it looks like YouTube is just guns blazing, going straight ahead. What do you see as challenges to yourself, to YouTube landscape in the future? Well, different platforms are becoming increasingly effective at just finding little blips and blurbs of content that are really, really interesting. And that, it's good for viewers. You know, if you only have a few minutes to watch some content, these days you're gonna scroll through Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. You're not gonna seek out a YouTube video. And it used to be that people did. That was where mainly where content was. And now with these 60 second videos on TikTok and, and Facebook, and you know, of course, Instagram, it's uh that's taking up people's casual viewing time. And so now YouTube videos are held to a higher standard, right? You have like your TikTok, your 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 fast food stuff basically. You you can ingest it really really fast, lots of it. It's really engaging. And then if you want to really sit down on the couch, you have Netflix. And so YouTube is somewhere in between, but it has to have there has to be production and quality that's in between TikTok and Netflix. You can't just walk around with a camera pointed at your face anymore. You, people are expecting something a little bit more. And so the challenge for a lot of people is going to be either adapting to that or finding out that maybe their content fits in someplace else and, and figuring out how to make something different. I'm doing a little bit on Instagram and, and TikTok and starting to learn it, but it's not really where my heart's at. I'm not I'm not particularly good looking. I don't. Uh, I don't come oh, off as an, cute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't come off as an athlete. That really, that really quick kind of fast food content. I don't think I'm very good at. I think I'm better at crafting a narrative. And so I'm staying the course on YouTube, but I'm keeping in mind it's got to be quality. It's I got to make sure that whatever I put up there is going to be interesting next week, the week after, the month after. Yeah. There's still there's still channels on YouTube like let's say Philip DeFranco, he reads the news. And tomorrow his video is irrelevant. But he posts it every day and so he's doing great. I can't do that. And so I need to post videos that are going to continue to perform well. Maybe they pop off, maybe they don't pop off like the like a uh, TikTok or Instagram video would. But it continues to get views on an ongoing basis. It continues to be content that can live there and be consumed. And I think that if you're going to do YouTube, you have to do it that way. Yeah. It's at least got to be relevant for a few months. Man, I, I struggle so much with making things. Like if I had it my way, I would spend a freaking month making a video, you know, and it would be like oh, a yeah. 15 to 20 minute video and it would be 
super high quality. Like just just before we got on this call here, totally. I, was, I was watching um, what is it Haggerty YouTube channel. Jason Casima mm-hmm. did this amazing video on the new Lucid Air, and it's like it's like this fifteen minute long video, and the production quality is insane. Like this does not belong on YouTube. I would love to make stuff like that, and I, it sounds like you do as well. You would like to make that kind of stuff as well. How do sure. You, how do you balance that though? You're telling me like you got to make five videos a month. Five videos a month. We know that does, they they are not. Yeah. You know. So how do you balance that? Well, I used to post two videos a week. You know, consistently, <laughs> and and I edited all of them, and they were shorter. They were probably about four or five minutes each. Yeah. And I like it better posting less often and making them a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that you have to experiment. I was posting more for a while, I was posting less for a while, and I've sort of found that it's gonna it's gonna end up being about five videos a month if we're keeping everybody busy and making content we're proud of. Yeah. I don't work as well when I have too much time because I just start to not work as hard. And so I need to be under the gun a little bit to, to work. I do work well under pressure. But at the same time, I've got to like pretty much abandon all my friends and family if I post any more than that. So I figured out that <laughs> yeah. this is kind of the this is kind of the balance point. I also have an assistant producer that I have to keep busy. If he doesn't if he doesn't have something to edit one week, then you know, he's just he's just sitting there. I gotta keep everybody busy. I got to keep myself busy and I have to make all the content that I want to make. You know, I have a list of ideas. If I, if I come up with an idea, I write it down immediately. And I think it also, it also helps you satisfy all of your viewers. They're all watching for different reasons. Some people really like the repair stuff. Some people like the writing stuff. Some people like the building stuff. And I try to put stuff out there that will make them all happy. And if there's too much time between the videos, then they have to wait forever to get what they came for. Yeah. I have to say, Seth, watching your videos, you seem very relatable. You know, I feel like that's part of your success. Like, I watch lots of other YouTube videos. Like, I'm obsessed with car videos and space videos, all this other crap. And a lot of them just feel like, you know, some person somewhere driving some $400,000 car. You know, it's like, whatever. It's not real life. Absolutely. But... When I watch your videos, like you're a guy, you know, you look like a normal guy and you're out there doing your thing. It's pretty neat. I got to say. Well, thank you. When I first started posting videos to me, I, I didn't realize that was an advantage. I said, well, why are people going to want to watch me ride a bike or build stuff? There are people that are doing it to such a higher level. I mean, Red Bull's got a whole channel where they do this stuff. Why aren't you watching that? And it turns out it doesn't, it doesn't connect to viewers as well. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, they it's it's actually unusual to see somebody relatable doing stuff because before YouTube, it was television networks that were creating content, and they said, "Okay, we've got to get the best looking, smoothest talking, you know, person that's completely polished, and we got to make everything perfect," and then. When some guy started doing the stuff in his backyard, turns out everybody wanted to watch him. But we didn't know that. No. Because we never, we never in a million years would have tried it. I mean, that's a dumb idea. Yeah. But it turns out that that's what they want to see. And so it took me a while to realize that that's why they were watching. 
And it didn't matter that I, you know, I have a, like a Long Island accent and gray hair and I'm, I don't really look like an athlete. It's, I think it's, that does uh, matter, though. Those are the exact but, reasons. Yes, yeah, that's what they want. And, and, and I am actually that person. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put on a show when I'm on YouTube. The way I act in real life is kind of exactly how I act on video. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I want to talk about traditional media, mountain bike media. I want some serious mm-hmm. questions now. I feel like traditional mountain bike media has maybe not given you and people like you a fair shake. And I feel like maybe some of that is paralleling the car world. We talked about this briefly mm-hmm. before we started started recording here, but I mean, in the car world, car journalists, they generally not a fan of YouTubers. Do you feel that in the mountain bike landscape, in the cycling landscape, do you feel that maybe sometimes you haven't been treated as fairly as you should have? Have you ever felt uh, any heat from, from mountain bike media, whether it's from a giant website, like from PB or whether it's from magazines or anything like that? To be perfectly honest... I don't really read many of them, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I that's I make the kind of I make the I don't really geek out over the new bike that's coming out or races and things, which is I think why my content appears different. Is I'm doing yeah. content on what I'm interested in, which is like fixing bikes and building stuff. And so I don't know, but I don't feel that it's their responsibility to give me any credit in the first place. You know, nor nor is it my responsibility to give them any credit. So I, d- I feel like they're doing their thing and I'm doing my thing. I don't feel any, um, I don't feel like I've been shortchanged by the, the mountain bike media. Like they had to build their audiences and I have to build mine. It's not their job to like shout me out or, or something. Yeah. So uh, I'm more like, a, I guess, a free market YouTuber. I just like everybody to do their own thing and and the quality of their content just speak for itself. Yeah. So you don't see yourself as a competitor, I guess, would be my next question to PBE or Vital or anything like that. Not really. And maybe some of those media outlets do feel like, you know, we're we're sort of the um, we're the doomsday of like their format. Like, oh, it's all going to go in that. I think there was a little bit of that at one point. Like yeah. a lot of the traffic was going to YouTube and people were scared. And then now everybody's got their own YouTube channel and they realize that this is you know, now they're all doing what the YouTubers are doing. Yeah. Um, but I think what has come and gone is this really negative attitude from athletes because they used to be able to do everything on just based on the merit of their performance. If you were a really, really, really good bike rider, that's all you had to be to succeed. And then somebody else comes along who's you know, not that good of a bike rider, but they have a bunch of followers and now everybody wants to work with them and they're getting more attention and they're more famous and more recognizable. And I can see how that's frustrating. But what has happened through, well, I hate to say it, but through attrition is a lot of the new athletes that are, that have come up, they're role models, they're personable, they're really good at social media. The ones that have succeeded the most are the ones that are working Instagram and staying in touch with their fans. And they have been more effective for the industry. They don't have like, you know, uh, 
maybe some of them still have neck tattoos, but most of them just look like more like normal people. They look, you know, kind of, uh, they look more relatable, friendly. It's, there used to be this attitude of like, um, they were better. Like I say, they, they, like they were better than everybody. Like they're superheroes. Yeah. And even as YouTube started to come up, there were people like, let's say Danny McCaskill is like the nicest guy in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And Ali Clarkson. Yeah. And you, those people started to, yeah, they're incredible riders. They're ridiculously good riders. But part of it is that they're also genuinely good people. And that has, and that's not even just in mountain biking. That's across the board. If a company does something that consumers don't like, they get hung up to dry. And so now it's like the most ethical companies are actually benefiting. You have to do good. You have to give back for people to like you. And the same thing happened in mountain biking. So now the people, the names that everybody recognize, they're actually really cool people that are personable and know how to speak to a camera. Now it sucks. You could be a great person, but you're just not all that good at talking to a camera or creating content. And you'd be the best rider in the world. And it's like, you're not really going to go anywhere unless you can figure it out. And that does suck. But it used to be that people who were great at making content, but weren't good looking or knew how to talk. Or, or, or knew how to produce stuff. They, they couldn't get anywhere. So it's kind of, it's kind of our time. Yeah, you it's know? our time. <laughs> it's our time now. Um, the, Rise the, up the, the normal the people. Nerds, yeah, the nerds are, are running the show now. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I've seen that, but I don't get as much pushback now because they're all doing it now. If you've made it this long, if your sponsorship's been renewed enough for you to still be here now, is because you started working social media. And I think that companies obviously do need to hire some people based solely on the merit of their writing because they need to develop the best parts possible. And they need, they need to push their products to the limit. But when it comes to marketing, you need somebody who can connect. And yeah. that's, just the, that's just naturally how it goes because it's more effective. You try it. You say, okay, I'm running this whole race team and this one person who does stuff in their garage or whatever or just does jibs on Instagram is getting more traffic than the entire team. And that it's, it's unfortunate for the team. It's the result of where media is right now and how yeah. it's consumed. I think COVID obviously spread that up a lot too without, without racing, without events. We saw totally. athletes have to evolve and i think the ones that evolved you saw them get youtube and their own youtube pages totally be way more active on social media because i mean for better or worse there is way more to this than results right oh yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah, exactly seth what are you what are you watching on youtube when you're not working i listen to a lot of podcasts because by the time I'm ready to wind down, I'm almost in bed already. Yeah. Uh, you know, I get off of work at like six or seven. I play with my baby daughter. Once she goes to sleep, I'm kind of getting ready to go to sleep. And so I lay there and listen to podcasts, usually about space and science and, and uh, yeah. you know, that I'm a nerd. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's You're it. You're preaching now. to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love that stuff. And... And I also have some some guilty pleasures on YouTube. 
I do watch uh, Doug DeMuro sometimes. I'm not even, I don't even care about oh. cars, but I just like the way he presents. He's and so I, good. Yeah, I get, I get subscribers. <laughs> I want the Doug score. <laughs> yeah, I want to see what he thinks of it. Uh, I, you know, I'll watch him review an old Toyota Previa or something, and I geek out over yeah. it. It's like, that's the way thing. I remember those when I was in high school. But um, I watch Matt's Off-Road Recovery. Um, so, yeah, he, he gets stuck vehicles out in uh, Utah, and it's so cool because these people, you know, they're on vacation. They go off trail. Their car gets stuck. And he drives out there in a little Jeep and yanks him out. And I like how personable he is. And I like uh, every every episode is going to go the same way. I know what to expect. And yeah. I do watch some of my other fellow bike YouTubers. I keep up on what they're doing a little bit. But other than that, I, I really don't watch a whole lot of YouTube, to be honest. Yeah. And you, I mean, you check pink bike like seven or eight times a day, of course. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, uh, how often are you going for a bike ride without a camera? Like just, just a bike ride. <laughs> Way less often than I used to. Yeah. The last year with my daughter, um, you know, raising a newborn to a one-year-old. I mean, I feel like I can barely get out once a month. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Now I do a lot of, I do a lot of dirt jumping and jibbing and just kind of riding in my own backyard or, or uh, going down to my local, there's a place called the Riveter that has a bunch of indoor jumps and pump tracks and stuff like that. I do more of that. And so my skills are really sharp, but I've lost so mm-hmm. much strength and cardio because I just, I don't have time to go out on a ride or I feel guilty going out on a ride and I don't do it nearly as much as I used to. That's going to change soon. But when I was doing, but but we're talking about a couple of years where I had a kid and I couldn't walk for six months because of an injury. So it's, it's you, not a very, You yeah. broke your leg and then, no, you broke your ankle, you told me. Yeah. And then like, dude, I've broken, I've broken my ankles a few times and I was not out for six months. Can you tell me what, what's going on there? They told me I'd be back on my bike in eight weeks, but there were complications. So after... Yeah, the next morning when I woke up and the nerve block started wearing off, the pain was unbelievable. And I knew it wasn't right because I've broken bones before. And they said, oh, no, it's just, it's supposed to hurt. I'm like, oh, it's not my first rodeo. You know, this this not supposed to hurt like this. It hurts a lot. Though. You know, I kind of feel like I'm going to like, you know, just, just cut it off at this point. And yeah. um, it turned out that they had hit a nerve when giving me a nerve block. And so a lot of the feeling from my knee down was just pain. I would have been, if it was just no feeling, then that would have been way better. But it was just pure concentrated pain, like pain capsaicin oil, like just absolute terrible pain in the tips of my toes. And so there were muscle spasms and everything. And what ended up happening is my foot healed all crunched up. And so I had scarring like inside my ankle, it's called the tarsal tunnel, where, where some of your uh, tendons run through. And uh, my toes got frozen in place. And so I went to physical therapy. We couldn't get them to uncurl. We were just like forcing them, just going through all sorts of pain. And finally, I saw a doctor that was able to figure out what was going on. And so we had to cut tendons in my toes in order to get my toes to go outwards again. And so now I don't have those tendons anymore. And so now, if, if there's no video to this podcast, it's hard to demonstrate how they, they move. But basically, I can move my toes up and down, but I can't curl them. 
So like, you know how you'll, you'll pick up a sock off the floor with your foot? Like I can't do that anymore. But I can do everything else. I can walk, I can pedal a bike and all that. And most of my feelings back. And But yeah, for, for six months, I couldn't walk. And then for a long time after that, I couldn't walk very well. And so at the tail end of that is when I had my daughter. And so this has not been a good year to sort of gauge how much I ride outside of YouTube. So if we go, if we go before all that happened... It was yeah. fairly it was fairly often, probably not as much as you think. I mean, it was at least once a week, but it it was but the rest of the time I was doing it with cameras. And so I did get to be on my bike a lot with cameras. And then we call it um a soul ride, where you get to ride without you know, without doing it for work. Yeah. Uh you know, just a ride for your own mental health, just a soul ride. And then I would get to do like a soul ride once a week. But but really I can't complain. Because I don't know how much I would ride if I had a, you know, a normal job where you don't get yeah. to be on your bike when you're at work. Oh, yeah. No, we so, got yeah. we're here, we're here complaining to each other, but we, we both we, know we got it so good, dude. We got so it good. so good. And, and I would do, I would even like to make it happen. I would do a lot of night riding. Like people watch the channel know that I love night riding. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep a lot of right lights around. I'm always reviewing lights and, uh. Sometimes I'll put out night riding content and people don't like it because they don't night ride and they just, they don't care about it. But I don't care. Yeah. I love I love riding at night. I love getting out when nobody else is out. I love getting out when I would just be sitting in my house anyway. So you, it sounds like you were injured in a lot of pain for a while. But also, sure. I know from being on the YouTube that consistent uploads is a huge factor in keeping your audience and growing your audience base. What the heck did you do during that time for videos and content? Well, we did lose a lot of momentum for sure. But uh, just like a bike shop will latch onto other things that mountain bikers like, like for instance, they'll serve beer. Turns out mountain bikers also like yeah. beer. Um, I tried to latch onto other things that mountain bikers liked or that I think that they would like. And so we did repair content. I made a... I made an entire bike chain out of, of master links, uh, like an eagle chain out of just eagle master links the whole way through. <laughs> World's most expensive 12 speed chain. Yeah, it was like a $350 <laughs> chain. Yeah, I did. I did as many things in the shop as I could. And I also did a little bit of RC car content because it turns out a lot of mountain bikers are into RC cars. And I, I, found out it's actually kind of known in the industry. Like there are companies that sell RC cars that are actually investing in bike companies because there's so much crossover between their employees and their customers. Now, not everybody was thrilled about that, but I had to make content and a lot of people liked it. All those videos are performing well and it, it held me over for a while and some of it stuck. But of course, mm-hmm. once I was able to pedal a bike again, there wasn't nearly as much RC car content because I was pretty excited to be back on my bike and building. Yeah, no doubt. But yeah. but the shop stuff has stuck. I started doing more and more stuff in the shop. And now I still do a lot of stuff in the shop. It's easier to control the environment. We don't have to worry about whether it's going to rain. And then the day we were supposed to film is going to be, you know, and then we're going to miss, we're going to miss our whole deadline. It turns out that people really like the shop content because they learn how to do things. And I I know I love learning how to do things online. I love like, feeling like I gained something from watching a video. 
And so the fact that my channel wasn't all one thing, the fact that we did do a variety of things allowed me to pivot pretty easily when I was injured. Does it make you feel uncomfortable if I tell you that you're probably one of the most recognizable mountain bikers in the world, Seth? It's, I, find it hard to, I find it hard to believe. It doesn't make me feel uncomfortable, um, but it's, I find it hard to believe because I feel like I don't deserve, I don't deserve that. There are people- Why would you like, say you don't deserve that though? You're hustling. You're making all the videos. We, I think that we get back to like, we were just talking about how there's more to this than like race results and like being like a badass athlete, you know? And I think that ties together. You're recognizable because you're hustling, you're making all these freaking videos, but you're also just like, you're my neighbor, man. You know? For for sure. So people, well, I, I know I tend to, um, I tend to be awestruck by people that do things that I can't do or things that I would aspire to be good at. And so I look at racers and athletes and even people who just do long gravel rides as like, my God, they're so committed. They have such willpower. Like it's raining and they go out. They, they drag themselves out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. And I feel like that's harder than what I do because I've never been successful at doing that. But those yeah. people try to make a video and they can't. And I know how to do it. And so it goes both ways. I feel like what they do is harder than what I do. But I, but then, you know, I have a lot of them coming up to me like, please help. How do you do this? Like I, I have so many text co message conversations going on right now with, I won't like give up their names and stuff, but like pro athletes and different, different people in the industry who are trying to make this work. I'm happy to give them advice and help them and try to coach them along. And some of them have really taken off. Uh, Eric Porter is a good example. Um, yeah. He, you know, during the pandemic, he's like, all right, I'm going to be stuck home. Time to start working on the yard. And now he's got videos with multiple million views. And he's he's got his YouTube, uh, what is it? The silver silver plaque when you get over 100,000 subscribers. He's killing it. And now he knows, he, he doesn't need any of my advice. He knows what to do. But I, but I still have a hard time feeling like this is harder than getting up every single morning and training. I still yeah. feel like that's harder because I have never been <laughs> successful at doing that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, building looks super important for you. Can sure. we talk about Burn Peak for a minute? Yeah. Uh, what is it? Where is it? And how is it funded? Tell, tell me all the things about it. Okay. So Burn Peak is my house. Uh, it's where oh. I moved in. So if we, if we, and there, there's, there's, should be a kind of a disambiguation of, of some of these different places. So when I, my last house, which is my first house with a real backyard, I started off, my backyard was like a, a deck with a fence around it. I, I lived in a townhouse. And those are the really old videos where my bike are in like a, they're in like a storage closet. They're in like a broom closet. I moved out of there into a house with a backyard, very small backyard, but steep. Mm -hmm because the house is on the side of a hill. And I started building trails back there almost as a joke. It was like I had a trailhead kiosk. I had trail signs and just this little scratched in this little lines around this barely a backyard. And I called mm -hmm. it Berm Creek because there's a creek at the bottom. And then after a few years, we had all sorts of features back there. It was all crammed in this little space. And then... 
privacy started to become a problem. And so I said, all right, I got to move like way out there. And wait, I wait, got, wait, privacy for you? Like people private, were Oh yeah, to- private. Yeah. I mean, there were people taking selfies in front of my house. There were like, yeah, it was getting- Wow. Yeah. Cause I so lived they, in the like, they neighborhood. Found a- yeah, they found I had where you lived. And- yeah, oh, I, yeah. I mean, I had. A, if you search long enough, you can find out where anyone lives. I mean, so I had like um, over a million subscribers, and I was just living in a normal neighborhood where people like walk their dogs. And so, even people who weren't subscribed to the channel, they're in the local high school. Oh, there's a YouTuber with over a million subscribers, and he lives in this neighborhood. Oh yeah, let's just go drive by his house. That's perfectly okay. And so there's people like. By the 10th time they drive by the house, I kind of know what they're doing. I've had people yeah. ring the doorbell and pretend they're just asking like a mundane question. I get know what they're there for. And it really started to get bad when like I would travel and then my wife would feel like she has to have all the blinds closed and she's just like, you know, that's where that's where my wife and my dog live and it's my home. I want to feel secure there. And so that's when I moved. And so now there's like, there's a gate by the road. You got to drive past a bunch of houses with like shooting targets in front of them. And then you got to go <laughs> stay away. <laughs> <Yeah>, it's, <laughs> it's pretty gnarly. And then, and then there's a really steep driveway you got to get up. And by the time you get to the top, it's pretty clear you're not supposed to be there. And, and so that is Berm Peak. So when I moved to Berm Peak, it's basically on the top of a mountain. We have a nice view from up here. It's all downhill from the top, uh, really steep. And I said, man, people are going to be so bummed that I moved away from Berm Creek because all the subscribers had sort of like fallen in love with it and they had Berm Creek shirts and all that. And so I said, all right, welcome to Berm Peak. Now we can build real trails. Now, I didn't know how to build real trails. Uh, You know, I just messed around in my backyard. I built dirt jumps and stuff when I was a kid and I built BMX ramps, but I had never done real trail building. And so I said, all right, well, even if I don't know how to do it, like, I'm going to do it. And now I do know how to build trails. Now I now I know how to make them drain properly. I know how to make them hold up. I know how to get all the organic matter, matter out of the soil. I've seen professional trail builders building trails. I've been on site. Over the last three years, I learned through trial and error and making a lot of mistakes. And I watched some of the old videos and I just cringe like, at how dumb the stuff I was doing. And I was just putting it out there. But... Mm-hmm. If you're afraid to make mistakes, you're never going to learn anything. And so Berm Peak is my property. It's my backyard. It's like about six acres. And we have, I don't exactly know how much elevation change we have here because I tried to figure it out one time and then I had surveyors come here and it looks like we, we almost have about 200 feet of elevation change, which is enough for a solid minute and a half a downhill if you build the trails right. And so mm-hmm. and so we have top to bottom trails here and we're building all sorts of wooden stuff and we've named all the features and we got a Berm Peak logo. And so Berm Peak became sort of my brand. More people recognize Berm. It used to be called Seth's Bike Hacks. And yeah, I feel like that, that's what I remember. Yeah, so that... And I don't know if it was the best idea for me to change the name, but I did. And I changed the name to Berm Peak because nobody was buying the Seth the Bike Hack shirts. They were they were buying mm-hmm. Berm Peak shirts. And so to me, there's no more there's no better indicator than what uh what people do with their wallet. 
So if if that's what they want to rep and they don't want to rep a Seth Bike Hacks um, logo or shirt, it means they're connecting more with Burn Peak. Now, it turns out they really liked the fact that my name was in it because it made it more personal. And then yeah. Burn Peak was sort of where we were doing everything. But to try and make it less confusing for new subscribers, I made it, I, I called it Burn Peak. We're doing everything on Burn Peak. Then there's this guy named Seth Bike Hacks and he doesn't make bike hacks videos anymore. So it seemed, it seemed a little strange, <laughs> you know? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, so that's Burn Peak. Now, what you might have, what you might have gotten mixed up with is we're building a bike park, a free public bike park that that's anybody's going to be able to ride. Was. Yeah. And that's called Burn Park because what else am I going to call it? Right. right. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> of course, it's going to be called Burn Park. And so that came to be through Patreon. So, Patreon is a place where um, your viewers can support you more directly. And they can either support you just because they want to support you, or you can offer them something every month. And so, I was offering uh, uh, an exclusive QA podcast. Uh, every once in a while I was posting an exclusive video and I was putting, uh, I was putting a lot into Patreon and I felt like, I felt like I could do something bigger with the Patreon revenue mm -hmm. because I was getting to the point where I didn't really need it. And since Patreon is, I feel like it's like kind of a donation platform, I almost felt guilty. Even though I was giving them something in return, I felt like, these are people who are really invested in my content and they, they're really, they really connect with it. Let's all do something together. And so one day I made a post and I said, look, I'm di diverting my resources from making podcasts and extra videos away to a different project. And I'm going to use all of the revenue on Patreon to do this. We're going to build a bike park somehow. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know I don't know where it's going to be. I don't know anything about it, but I know that all the money that you give starting next month is going to go to that. And so I'm giving you fair warning. If you're on board, then, you know, welcome aboard. And if that's not what you want, if you were just here for the other content, then, you know, I'm I'm just letting you know ahead of time so you get what you pay for. And a lot of people doubled down at that point. They they actually increased their monthly pledges. And I was only asking for $2. There were people giving five, 10, 15, 20 because they were like, yes, yes, let's do it. So I only announced this at Patreon. I didn't make it really publicly known for a while because I knew that if I did, everybody would be asking, is it done yet? And my, my intention was we're going to make it a public bike park that anybody can ride. It has to be a public bike park that anybody can ride because... That's what I'm advocating for. I'm telling everybody that we should build more bike parks. So let me go through the pain and suffering of getting a community on board with it and getting it done. Let, let me figure out all the political hurdles and all the challenges that others have gone to do the same thing. And like other people have built bike parks in their community and they don't have a million subscribers. And Everything I do is just on the shoulders of those people. Like that's incredible that they're able to make it happen because it wasn't easy to make it happen. And I have a huge marketing engine behind me and, and monthly revenue from these patrons. So I think at the time it was like 
we're bringing like 3,500 bucks a month or something like that. And immediately there were patrons that are like, Seth, I really like where your head's at, but you know, you can't build a bike park with that much money. Like it's just not possible. Like you can't, you can't do it. And they were hundred percent right. You totally can't. Um, you would have to save up for years yeah. to build some kind of a bike park. And so, so how'd you do it though? So first I found a place that I, I, I looked for places that we could build it. And my thinking was I could just pay for it and then have Patreon pay me back on the back end. And which was like, I was going to see how feasible it would be like when the time <laughs> Sounds came. Sounds scary. <laughs> before, yeah, before I committed to anything, I was just going to see if I could do it. And so yeah. um, I started looking for places that we could build it, like towns that would be willing to work with us. And I reached out to Pisgah area Sorba and they connected me with a few different municipalities and it always just kind of like fizzled out. And then finally, I spoke to the town of Canton. The town manager is a mountain biker. I didn't have to sell anything to him. He was totally, totally on board. He got it. And they were working on acquiring a property that they were going to build a big park in, a 450-acre park that was going to have hiking trails, mountain biking trails, everything. I said, can we section off a little area, you know, a few acres where we can build a skills park? The Asheville metro area has tons of amazing backcountry single track. We've got epic rides. Every ride you do out here is like a religious experience. You got to pack, you got to cancel all the stuff you're going to do the next day. You got to pack a bunch of water and, and food. And, and I feel like what the area is lacking is a place where you can just blow off steam after work. Jumps, flow trails, features, bring your kids, you know, a place like that. I was thinking Valmont, you know, like, like in Boulder, Colorado, where it's just amazing jumps, really well maintained. You can pull up, knock out some laps and go home. Now, what we ended up building is nothing like Valmont. Uh, it's more like flow trails. But I started out with that idea. And then when I got elevated trail design on the case to, to go and look through the property and see what they could build, uh, Peter came back and he said, look, we're going to be better off having one big pedal up trail that goes around this, this uh, foothill over here. And then we can scratch a bunch of lines into the hillside that all meet up at the same place and you take that same trail back. So like a traditional pedal up bike park. And they're really short runs. You can do, you can knock out a lot of laps really quick. The climb is like nothing. It's, it's really, really sweet. It's not exactly what I originally planned, but I think it's actually better because you get a little taste of like a ski a ski resort style bike park trail and then you can pedal back up and do it again and we have from like baby trails like ride a balance bike trails uh, all the way up to you know wall rides and stuff and cannons and so a as the time approached to do this park and and, and uh, i got different options right i had like the good better best option i said okay we don't have even close to the amount of money we need to build this. But let me see if I can get some sponsors to cover the rest of it. So the patrons will cover the bulk of the park and they'll cover, you know, maybe one big long trail. And then I can get other people that I know in the biking industry to maybe kick in. And what they'll get in return for it is exposure. Because a lot of public parks have like a, this, this big sign 
with like 5,000 different sponsors on it. And they each gave like 1,500 bucks or 800 bucks. I don't have the time to go and ping that many different companies and make sure they paid and then make sure they get credit. And then I know the way it works. They're all going to come to me like, hey, can you give us a shout out? And it's like, you know what? I got to work with like four companies or something. And they, and if you're, if you're getting involved, you are paying for an entire trail. There's nothing in between. So it's like, you're going to put in $40,000 or nothing. And so it turns out people were down for that. And so within about a month, I had like semi commitments from all of these companies. And so, so here's the way it works. You go to a company and you say, Hey, I want to build this really cool trail and there's going to be lots of views and, and the bike park's going to be amazing. And uh, yeah, all we need is the money from you. And they say, oh, cool, cool. How are you paying for the rest of the park? Uh, well, we're, uh, we're working on that. Oh, okay. So once you get that figured out, then we'll give you the money. Nobody wants to be part of a failing project. They don't want to just piss away their marketing budget and then it fail. And so then... You go to the town and you say, hey, I want to build this bike park here. And they say, oh, cool. How are you going to pay for it? You say, well, these people are there. They might give me money. And then uh, these people might give me money if they give me money. So it's like until somebody else puts their skin in the game, nobody else wants to jump in because it's a huge risk. And so I said, you know what? If everybody says no, I'm just going to pay for the bike park. So I had, and I couldn't, I couldn't pay for the bike park, by the way, but I, but that was, I like your positive attitude though. <laughs> yeah. But those were the contracts that I signed. I said to elevated trail design, like, all right, I'm going to pay you guys. If you're going to do this work starting at this date and I'm going to pay you guys. And yeah, I would have to take out like a, I would have to take out a loan against my house to make those payments. If that's what happened, if nobody else jumped in. And then I would slowly get paid back from Patreon in the back end, assuming all those patrons stayed on board giving money. But I was fairly sure that if I did that, that like, yeah, we're building this with or without you, that that's when they're going to jump in. People want to follow a succeeding project. People want to be... Once they know something's going to happen, then they, it's really easy to get people involved. And so everybody did. I didn't have to pay for it. And uh, everybody's getting something really cool now. So can we just take a second here? Okay, first, actually, how, what year, how long ago did you start doing this? When did you leave that job that you were building websites? I guess it was probably late 2017, early 2018. That's when okay. I was fully, I was already a big YouTuber by then, but I, I was, you know, almost a million subscribers at that point. I was probably like, I don't know, 800,000 subscribers at that point, but um, I guess I, lo I guess I lost the ability to say I'm a cautious person, but I didn't, oh, yeah. I could have, <laughs> I could have stopped doing YouTube long before I did, but I felt like I was leaving too much on the table. And yeah. so, yeah, it was probably around 2018 by the time I totally severed myself from my prior career. Can, I just want to take a minute and just talk about how this has been such a crazy ride. Could you imagine? Like you and I are just talking right now about you making a freaking bike park. You have yeah. almost 2.4 million subscribers. You're doing five videos. Like I, could you ever have imagined in your wildest dreams? No. So, and, and actually I think 
dreams are for people who are really misinformed. So if, <laughs> if you try to, if you try to follow your dreams, you're going to end up at a dead end because, because it turns out you can't predict the future. So the, the best thing to do is to adopt a lifestyle where you're nimble enough to pursue opportunities. And so I've always done that. I've always spent below my means. I've always like tried to keep my overhead low and just given myself the ability to pivot really quickly and take whatever opportunities I see coming my way. And so I've continued to do that. And if you ask me when I was a kid, what I wanted to do, I say, I want to be a professional BMXer. And I'm glad I didn't do that because professional BMXers are super poor. And so this is, this is way better, but I didn't know there was going to be a YouTube. I didn't know that a guy that is, can just kind of get by on a bicycle could be influential. You know, I, I didn't know any of these things because it didn't exist. But because I always allowed myself to pivot and pursue opportunities, I just fell into this position. And it's not surprising and hard to believe anymore because from my perspective, it happened really slowly. It happened day by day. And you worked your um, ass off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. What, what I can't believe is the opportunities that people just give up because they're scared to do it or they're too comfortable. They're, they're afraid of giving up their comf- comfort day to day. You know, um, I think if everybody just followed opportunities, they would end up someplace great. Yeah. It's you easy know? to stay in your, stay comfortable, you know, that's the easy, easy way to do it. It is easy, but it's also boring. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So speaking of opportunities, what's, what's next for Seth and Burn Peak? Well, as I get older, I can't put myself, you know, at crazy risk every single day. And, uh, you know, I look to the future. I want to be able to work on bigger projects. I would love to be able to do like long form content one day, like really long form content, but I haven't figured out a way to make it sustain itself. But someday, someday, I don't know when it's going to be, someday I'll step into more of like a, like a production role and try and make some big content. But right now I have been doing a little bit of real estate development. I don't want to tell you what's coming down the road, but Last year, we opened the Berm Peak Ranger Station. And it was a, we bought an old house that was just, it was in shambles. But it was in Pisgah Forest. It was really close to all the trails. And we totally renovated the house and made it perfect for mountain bikers. So there's secure bike lockup. There's a bike wash station. Uh, We have filtered water in the sink, like a reverse osmosis water filter. We changed the water heater out to a tankless one so that mountain bikers just take showers back to back to back and never run out of hot water. Like we did every little thing that we could do to make this place comfortable for mountain bikers. And now a lot of months we're booked out like 28 days. So it's really, really, it's been really, really rewarding. It's given fans of the channel sort of a place they can go, like a sort of like a Mecca they can go to. And it's also kind of a good retirement plan because YouTube doesn't really have that. So, <laughs> and so, you know, with inflation the way it is and everything, probably investing in real estate is not such a bad thing. Now, right now, houses are in short supply. And were I to buy another one, I'd be taking away a starter home from somebody who could really use one. And so 
I'm not doing that anymore. I want to start building new. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know where I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to start. But I, what I would really love to do is build a place for mountain bikers to go uh, where they can have really, really unique amenities. Like, build, you know, there have been for years places that are made completely for skiers. And mm -hmm. I think mountain biking is big enough where there's a market for that. You know, like you go into like even when I go and stay at Whistler, the, all the the condos are made for skiers. They have boot dryers in there and they have heated floors and stuff for the winter. Like it's totally they're all in on skiers. So why wouldn't mountain bikers love that? There's entire families of people who love mountain biking and they go they travel and mountain bike. And so I feel like like, OK, Bulberry Gap, like there are definitely places that are made for mountain bikers, but I feel like it could be done to even higher detail. You know, they need a place to wash their bike. They need a place to store it. They need a place to work on it. Like at the ranger station, we have a full workshop downstairs with special, down, stocked with specialty tools and everything. Not one has been stolen since we opened. <laughs> Do you ever, when people are staying there, do you ever just show up and be like, hey, oh, hey, everybody. I've done it a couple of <laughs> times. I get yeah. a lot of requests. Can, can we meet Seth while we're here? And it's like, I don't know. You know, my schedule doesn't always line up. But um, here and there, I'll show up. Usually because something's wrong. Uh, so recently we had a problem with the air conditioning unit. And the air conditioning unit also heats the house. And so it was going out of control. And then, so they were pretty surprised to see me show up with a toolbox to like get into the thermostat and try and like hold them over, you know? <laughs> you should have filmed it, uh, made a video. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty hands-on. And so like, yeah, I'm the guy who goes there and installs a new thermostat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, eventually we, we got it fixed, but yeah, a lot of times it's because, um, I got to manage my rental property and I am yeah. very hands-on with it. Um, we have a property manager that handles all the bookings and everything like that. And uh, we have cleaners and we could probably do it ourselves, but we put that stuff in place because we want to be able to scale it when we can eventually figure out more stuff to rent. And again, I, when I, when I bought that house, I had no idea how I was going to do it. And I still have no idea how I'm going to expand it, but we're, we're going to one way or another. I, I had no idea how rewarding the ranger station was going to be just in terms of like feedback and like how much fun people have when they're on vacation there. Because it turns out like the place they're staying is part of the vacation. Let's go back to Burn Park for a sec. Is it done? Like, can, I, can I come ride bikes there? What's going on? So not yet. We, we sort of finished all the trails during the fall. Uh, elevated trail design private company they they finish things when they say they're gonna but we're there's a lot of parties involved and so the the actual greater park chestnut mountain which they're going to build additional things in that wasn't ready for people to park at and you know and it kind of be a legal park and so they said you know what let's hold off we're going to open it in the spring we have to take care of a few things and so now it's going to open april 23rd we've been ready to open but now we're putting in all the, we kind of halted what we were doing in the fall. And so now we're resuming. We resumed a few weeks ago, putting in trail signs, putting down gravel. We're going to make sure it's all fresh when it opens. And you can just show up April 23rd with a bike and a helmet and just go in and ride it. Sounds like I should probably come south. You, say should, hi. you should probably Confirm come say hi. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. There's, so there is a trail to pedal up to Berm Park from the parking lot. And it's, 
it's not an insignificant climb. It's a, it's a pretty good climb to get up there. And then once you're in Burn Park, the laps are really short, really short climbs. But the town has built a directional mountain bike trail down to the parking lot. So you get all that elevation back at speeds that mountain bikers would like to go. So yeah, you get it all back. It's really cool. That sounds awesome, Seth. Yeah. That sounds like a good time. Yeah. All right. I'm sure the internet is calling for both of us right now. Like, so I think you got to go make videos and probably edit videos. Sure. And I bet I have to do the same. Thanks for the chat. That was a great chat. And we're going to catch up at some point soon again, I'm sure. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, uh, thanks for asking good questions. Yeah. <laughs> every now and then. Every now yeah. and then. <laughs>